The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another very timely conversation. I'm really thrilled today to have Nick Galluccio as my guest. Nick is a portfolio manager at Teton Advisors and has spent nearly 40 years investing in small caps. We actually sat down a few weeks ago for a Q&A feature in Barron's magazine that generated a lot of interest from readers. And so I thought it would be great to have him on the show to share some stock picks and answer your questions. So welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Lauren, it's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, Nick, you've stuck with small caps you know, for decades through multiple market cycles, and yet large caps tend to get all the glory. So tell us what it is about investing in small caps that has kept you so engaged all these years. Well, I don't want to get too technical, but there have been studies, the Ibison study, and B of A just did a study, and B of A showed that if you put $100 in small cap, in 1934, it would be worth $50 million today. And if you put $100 in large cap in 1934, it'd be worth $5 million. So you made 10 times more money uh, in small caps versus large caps. That, you know, those kinds of studies, and there's another one called the Ibbotson study, but it's, uh, I just happened to cut my teeth on small cap and I, at TCW, I ran a team and uh, you know, it's what I've been doing my whole life prior to Teton and then at Teton. Uh, I enjoy it because you can add value. You can get to know your companies. Large caps are very efficiently priced. I know we had a run for 10 years where it seemed easy to make money in large caps, but I think it's going to get harder, uh, you know, in these difficult times. And, uh, you know, you can add value as you move down in market cap and, wow. and get to know your companies. Now, there's not much research, though, out there on Wall Street and on, on small caps. So does that mean you have to dig quite deep to do the, the background uh, checks on all your companies? You do. Uh, and what's happened over the past uh, 10 years is the migration of active management to passive. And 50% of domestic equity assets are now in index funds or ETFs. So half of the industry has sort of gone away. And the, the half that's left over is actively managed. And within that portion, small cap, I believe, is the most inefficiently priced because, as you say, a lot of the Wall Street coverage has disappeared because you can't really generate the commissions to pay the research analysts to provide that kind of research. I mean, there's still good research on Wall Street, but uh, I think the, port the, the buy side portfolio manager uh, and, and analysts can go out and visit companies and get to know them very well and add value. And that's what we've done over time. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about the, the, the macro environment this year. It's, it's really been a, a brutal year for investors, no, no matter which asset class you know, you're invested in. And investors usually prefer the safety of blue chip names over small company stocks when there's an economic downturn. 
And I think a lot of investors are, are worried about a recession, you know, rising interest rates and inflation. So let's get the case for, for small caps. I mean, do you think small caps could prove to be more resilient than blue chips and still provide some upside during an economic recovery? Well, I'll flip it around and say that everything you're saying is correct, Lauren. And I think that's why small caps are so cheap relative to large caps. They've already discounted these negative recession scenarios. Uh, today, small caps sell at 11 and a half to 12 times forward earnings, where over long periods of time, they've sold at 15 to 15 and a half times earnings. So they're selling at a significant historical discount relative to their own valuations. And also they're selling at a discount to large caps when historically they've sold at premiums to large caps. Mm -hmm. So I think much of the recession worries are baked into the valuations. Okay. If we've that also, answers your question. Yes, it does. But you know, we've also seen that the dollar surged this year. What impact has the dollar's rise? Um, what, what impact does that have on small caps and the outlook for small caps? Well, small caps are primarily domestic. And in general, 20% of their revenues are generated overseas versus 40% or more for large cap companies. The dollar is appreciated around 17% against a basket of currencies, causing all kinds of translation impact on, uh, on earnings. And small caps haven't had that problem. Moreover, you've had a trend called global to local, where multinationals are onshoring their supply chains. And many of these supply chains are provided by smaller companies. So small caps will benefit from that trend. Mm, it sounds like a, a good tailwind for the small caps. So let's pivot a bit to sort of how you invest in small caps. I know that you're a, a value investor and that you have, I guess, four big categories that you look at uh, for investing. Walk us through those four categories. Yes, uh, we're value managers, but slightly different because our definition of value is broader than your traditional deep value manager. We have uh, undervalued growth in our categories, which are companies that are growing but selling at a discount to their peer group multiples or to the market. They're not growth at a reasonable price. They're value stocks uh, that are growing, uh, but you're buying them at you know eight to 10 times earnings when the market is selling at 12 to 14 times earnings. Another category, which is more traditional value is undervalued assets. These would be your regional banks or your energy companies where the franchise value or the underlying asset value of, of the company is worth more than the stock price. Uh, we have turnarounds, which are companies that are undergoing restructuring, uh, product repositioning, uh, plant rationalization, and an improving margin picture as they come out of a cyclical downturn with a lot of earnings power in the future. And then the fourth category is um, um, emerging growth, which are smaller companies that had hit grown at 20, 30 percent and then had some problems, uh, glitches uh, in you know, introducing new products or margin pressures from competition. And the stocks get hammered pretty hard and we step in and do the work and, and take small positions. But that category is only never more than 10 percent of the portfolio. So those Great. are our four categories. 
So we're going to sort of look under the hood a little bit and see where you're finding opportunities. But before we talk about specific stocks, I just want to remind the audience that if you do have a question for Nick, please do submit your question in the Q&A feature because I'll be leaving uh, about 10 minutes at the end to go through your, or, all your questions. So one of the areas where you'll find is overweight is in financial. So tell us why you are, um, I guess, optimistic about financials and perhaps a couple of uh, picks in the, in the financial sphere. Yeah, well, within financials, we have 20% plus of the portfolio in regional banks. And, uh, you know, these are banks that in this day and age are well capitalized, i.e. their tangible equity is much higher than it has been during historical uh, recessionary periods. So we feel that even if the economy does slow, that they will get through it uh, safely. Uh, credit remains strong so far. We know housing is weakening and you know, uh, we're going to see some bad, you know, loan, car loans and those kinds of things. But but credit remains strong and higher interest rates are a tailwind for financial uh, bank, regional banks because they price their assets quicker than they do their liabilities. Their assets being the loans they make and their liabilities being their deposits. And um, the, the last point is that you're seeing a major wave of mergers within the regional bank space, and there's a lot of opportunity for accretion. Um, a, a year ago, we had 150 regional banks acquired by other larger institutions. This year, it's running at about half that because of all the issues with rising interest rates and worries about the economy, but we think that'll re-accelerate. So we feel there's a lot of opportunity within uh, regional banks. And you know, one uh, that I mentioned in, in the print version that we, we like a lot uh, because it's in Texas and Texas is a growing economy is Veritex Holdings, VBTX. It has a market cap of about a billion five. The stock's at around 30 down from 45. It has a yield of 2.9%, uh, tangible book value of $18. It sells at 1.7 times tangible book, which is higher than New England banks, but deservedly so because they're growing their, their loans at 25% plus, and they're gathering deposits commensurate with their loan growth. And you know this is in Dallas and Houston, and they, a few years ago, acquired Green Bancorp, and they're very good at integration of acquisitions. Hmm. Uh, we, we own others, and one I like in Rhode Island that we've owned for many, many years is Washington Trust Bancorp one of the oldest banks in the United States, I think founded in the 1800s. And um, they have a deposit footprint in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, very well managed. They have a private wealth division. Uh, they've lost some advisors, so that's been a, a, a watch for us. Uh, but fundamentally, it's a great franchise, and I wouldn't be surprised if someday they merge into a larger bank that wants to get into those markets, because in Connecticut, just about every small public regional bank uh, has been folded into larger banks. They all want to get into this marketplace. Mm -hmm. A few moments ago, you mentioned Texas, and that makes me think of energy. And of course, you know, the energy sector is the, the top performing sector this year. Uh, how do you feel about energy? And do you own some companies in the energy sector? Well, we do. Um, I like energy. I think there's been a supply issue. Uh, you know, You know, demand is, you know, dependent on the economy and global, you know, 
what's going on in you know Russia and Ukraine, but uh, there's been an underinvestment in oil and gas exploration due to the shift to green energy. And consequently, um, you know, it's the revenge of the old economy, as Goldman Sachs says. And because of that, there is going to be a, a revival. We're in the early stages of the super cycle uh, that is necessary before we can transition to green energy. Uh, one company we like a lot is Champion X Corp, uh, the, which is the symbol is CHX. The stock it is around 30. Um, it has a market capitalization of about four and a half billion dollars. And it uh, in June 2020, uh, it Apergee, which made diamond drill bits, merged with Champion X, which was a division of Ecolab. And Champion X uh, manufactures specialty uh, chemicals that go into the production and well completion. And when you look at the drill bits and you look at these specialty chemicals used, uh, you know, in well completion, you have a 90% recurring revenue business uh, with a good balance sheet and um, and it's a consumable business and it sells at around seven to eight times cash flow, the company. Mm. We like that one a lot for the long term. Great. So, you know, one area we unfortunately couldn't touch on in the print version, we sort of ran out of space, uh, is healthcare. And I believe you're slightly underweight healthcare versus your benchmark. Give us your outlook on healthcare and maybe tell us about one or two stocks uh, in the healthcare sector that you are, are, are bullish on. Well, one in particular is AMN, Health, AMN Healthcare, uh, which is a travel nurse staffing company. And uh, we've owned it for quite a while. I think we're up, you know, one or 200% from our purchase. And we've held on to it because there's been a perpetual nursing shortage. And the, the, the idea that uh, a travel nurse staffing business affords nurses the flexibility of their own hours, wages are moving up quite dramatically. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic only impacted uh, enrollment in nursing programs across the country. There was, there was a decline or less than expected enrollment we're seeing that turn around a little bit, but we don't think that nursing shortage is going to be addressed uh, for a number of years. And this is a, one of the pure plays to participate in that cycle. Great. So one of your, your biggest positions is AAR Corp. I'm wondering what makes you such a fan? Well, AAR Corp is tied to the it's it's tied to the uh, commercial aerospace reequipment cycle. By that, I mean what they do is uh, it's a 1.7 billion uh, market, uh, it, a 1.3 billion market cap company out of Chicago, outside of Chicago. I used to visit them quite frequently. Balance sheet is good. And what they do is they do, have two main businesses. They, they refurbish spare parts, engine parts and other parts that go into uh, manufacturing and uh, maintenance of, of uh, aircraft engines. And they do a maintenance and repair business for landing gears, airframes, wheels and brakes and components. And it's really tied to uh, miles flown. And what we've seen is we're back to pre-pandemic levels in commercial passenger traffic uh, in the United States and and, and, uh, Europe and uh, Asia uh, have not quite gotten back to uh, pre-pandemic levels, but we think that will continue and uh, they also, uh, a lot of the airlines are outsourcing their, uh, their uh, logistics for spare parts. 
and they are a major logistics supplier for Lufthansa and a number of the large airlines. Great. So you know, earlier you mentioned you have these four broad categories, you know, turnaround, uh, undervalued assets, undervalued growth and emerging growth. And I'm wondering in the turnaround category, do you have a stock there that you are optimistic about that you think will really will turn around in the, in the future? Well, there is one that that has been a, a, a you know a little bit of a challenge, but it, it's cheap right now. FlowServe, which is about a three billion dollar um, market cap, uh, and um, it is a company that makes pumps and valves tied to the energy industry and the petrochemical industry, and um, it has a three point four billion market cap. The stock's at around thirty, down from thirty nine. And in the quarter just reported a few weeks ago, uh, they have implemented a new ERP system that basically puts, takes all the divisions and the CFO has to sort of reconcile all the accounting. And they've had some issues with it. But what we like about it is um, the, the industrial flow management business, the pumps, valves, mechanical seals are tied to refinery, pipeline, petroleum, elect, uh, chemical processing, power generation, and water treatment. And 30% of, of its sales are to oil and gas. The backlog is at 2.6 billion, which is a record level. And they had a billion dollars in orders in the quarter. Uh, the issue is supply chain, uh, procuring components and getting everything out on a timely basis. And, you know, and, and, and the fact that they haven't been able to procure the prop components is impacted margins. So we're waiting. It's a wait and see. But the fact is you're buying a company that could earn three to four dollars in the next couple of years, next three or four years, and you're buying it at a discount. And we think um, they could earn, you know, 350 a share and you'd put some multiple on it because it's a unique company. And, you know, we think it's worth 40 to 50 dollars. So it's worth 20 more on the upside and maybe 10, uh, 5 to $10 on the downside. So the risk reward is attractive and it is a high quality company, but it is a turnaround and it may take a few more quarters to, um, to see whether they can, uh, you know, uh, deal with some of these issues. Okay, great. Um, I'm seeing lots of questions coming in next. So I think I'm going to pivot uh, and start sure, asking questions sure. from the audience. I'll start with one from Lawrence who asks, where are valuations on small caps in comparison to the historical range? And what do you see happening to earnings in 2023? He also says, how do you see a potential recession playing into this? Well, the first answer is the right now, based on the earnings that we have calculated through FactSet, um, earnings for small cap companies in general are about 11 and a half times forward 12 month earnings. As I said earlier, historically, small caps have sold at 15 and a half times earnings. So they're selling at a 30% type discount to historical valuations. Moreover, small caps have historically sold at a small premium to large caps. And right now they sell at around a 20% discount to large caps on an enterprise value EBITDA basis. As far as recession concerns, we've already had Q1 uh, of this past year was negative 1.6% real GDP. And Q2 was minus six tenths of 1% GDP. Now that had to do with inventory destocking, we know. But the economy is already... Uh, sustaining some of the after effects of the tightening and 
you know, interest rates rising and quantitative tightening. So we think much of the uh, bad news is baked into the valuations. For 2023, uh, we see a single digit improvement in earnings because we think the economy is going to be in a slow growth mode as we come out of this tightening cycle. Um, but when we look out 18 months, um, we see a, a, a reacceleration. I don't know where the absolute bottom is in terms of GDP, but I think right now when you're seeing all the inventory destocking across the economy, it feels like we're in the midst of not a recession, but close to, to a recession. Okay. Douglas has a broad question. He says, uh, if we have cash sitting on the sidelines, when do you think it is a good time to begin reinvesting? It's very difficult to time the stock market. Um, we have told clients historically it is important to put money to work on a regular basis, maybe in small increments. So I would just do it, um, you know, on, a, on an incremental basis. Uh, for instance, you know, you could have waited and then, you know, yesterday the market was up 1,100 points. And, you know, the, some of the stocks that I wanted to talk about today were up 12 to 17 percent in one day. I mean, you just don't know where the inflection point is going to be. So I would take advantage of market pullbacks and nibble away and build positions slowly. Mm-hmm. Hernan asks, in this current market, what percentage allocation should I have in my portfolio for small cap stocks? I think when I talk to advisors, we typically say maybe 10% of your asset allocation uh, should be allotted for small caps. I think that's a prudent amount. Okay. Now we're going to have a question about microcaps. Uh, Trin wants to know, do microcaps generally presage stock market recovery even before small caps do? I don't know the answer to that question, but microcaps are very interesting because like small caps, they're very inefficiently priced. And because there's virtually no research coverage, uh, you have the opportunity to dig deep uh, take positions and hold it for 10 or 20 years and do very well. We have a stock in our portfolio, Integris, which is now an 8 billion market cap. And we started buying it at $3 a share a decade ago, and we still own it. And, you know, it's gone from 300 million market cap to uh, 8 billion market cap. It's a filtration and contamination control and specialty materials company. But every once in a while, a micro cap becomes a mid cap. <laughs> it's so, exciting. Yes. So Rolf has a question about finding safety in this market. And he asks, are treasury bonds and bank CDs the safest place today for our investment? The market is just too unpredictable, especially for older workers. I, I think the two-year treasury, United States treasury with a 4.1 or 4.2% coupon right now is a very attractive investment. I would encourage anyone to put money into United States short-term U.S. Treasury uh, securities. Okay. Richard wants to know, do you invest in exchange-listed macro-cap companies? And are you aware of the NASDAQ's current moratorium on listing macro-cap companies either through an IPO or an uplisting? Um, you're talking about pink sheet companies. We... In our portfolio, we typically do not invest in pink sheet companies. 
uh, where our average market cap is typically 300 million to four or 5 billion. Um, but a micro cap investor would spend more time trafficking there. There's nothing wrong with pink sheet companies. I think they're, they have full disclosure for most in most cases if they're uplisted within the OTC exchange, the pink sheets. So mm -hmm. I would say um, we do very little in that area. Okay. Nancy would like to know, are there any spots in the retail sector that remain attractive? Yes. Um, we like American Eagle Outfitters. Um, it, they have a great brand. Balance sheet is strong. Excellent management team. Uh, the stocks come in. Uh, that's a name that we've owned historically. And we also like Urban Outfitters. Uh, URBN, I believe, is the symbol. I don't have that right at my fingertips right now. But those are two names in retail that we think are very attractive. They've come way down and they have strong balance sheets to weather whatever storm is ahead. Okay, great. Uh, Joseph asks if you have any input on forward, or I guess a forward look on small cap index funds as compared with the Russell 2000. Well, we compare ourselves to the Russell 2000 and Russell 2000 value because we, we use both benchmarks. We are value investors, but many people put us in a, uh, in a, in a blend universe, uh, peer group universe. Uh, we've outperformed both the Russell 2000 and the Russell 2000 value on a one, three, five, and 10-year period in most, most of those periods, but it's not been easy, and, um, but there's nothing wrong with uh, putting some money in an index fund if you want a small allocation, a small cap. Okay, great. Giancarlo would, would like to know, would you be able to mention the undervalued companies you're referring to, specifically the growth undervalued ones? Well, we, I, one I, you know, that I like a lot is a very high quality company is Advanced Energy Industries, AEIS. It has a market cap of about $3 billion, no debt, uh, three or 400 million in cash in the balance sheet, stock around 87 down from 98. And it's a precision engineered power conversion measurement and control solutions transform power into various usable forms. They sell into semi-capital equipment, industrial, medical, telecom networking. We like this because 70% of their, uh, of their end market, their sole source to 70% of their end market customers. What's driving demand for this company is 5G. Uh, process automation, smart manufacturing, high-performance computing, and the like. And it's a pure play power management company. And their three-year goal is to achieve earnings of $7.50, which if they do, we think it's $130 stock. This is a company you can own for a long period of time. Okay. Hell would like to know, how long do you hold on your positions and what's the churn? The churn is 20% a year. Some of it's driven by takeouts. Typically, we have five to 15 companies in our 90 stock portfolio acquired on an annual basis, which forces you to redeploy those into new names. Now, we don't buy a stock because we think it's going to be acquired. But for instance, regional banks, there's a merger wave going on there. A lot of the tech companies have merged. So that forces the 20 percent. That's low. Uh, and so that if you have a 20 percent turnover in your portfolio, your typical holding period is three to five years for any stock that you own. 
Okay, another question from Hell. So either we have two Hells uh, listening in or we have uh, two questions from Hell. Uh, how do you make money if these stocks are not widely followed? Sooner or later, uh, there is a catalyst. What we like to say is we're buying companies uh, you know, below their intrinsic value with a catalyst. We never buy a stock that's just statistically cheap. We're looking for a dynamic in the company that will provide the catalyst that will unlock the value. And in many cases, it's a new product introduction. It is a margin improvement due to the restructuring that I talked about in turnarounds. It's, you know, those kinds of things. And um, sooner or later, the catalyst occurs, the stock starts showing, uh, you know, progress, and maybe one or two uh, Wall Street sell side analysts pick up coverage. And then it becomes more widely uh, disseminated. And then as more coverage uh, occurs, uh, the stock, you know, gains traction in a broader investor base. And over time, you know, it compounds as long as they keep delivering uh, performance. So Shirley has a follow-up question from your earlier comment uh, on the, the, the two-year treasury. She says, please explain why the 10-year treasury is not a good investment versus your recommendation of the two-year treasury. The 10-year treasury could very well be a good investment. But remember, uh, if rates were to move up from 4% to 6% on the 10-year, you could lose uh, 30, 20 to 30% of your money. Uh, because you probably wouldn't hold it for 10 years. Whereas if rates move up on a two-year, you can wait two years to get your money back. As you know, when rates move up, bond valuations drop. That's the risk of a 10-year. Remember, rates were at 1.6% a year ago. And if you had a 10-year bond and you bought it with a 1.6% coupon a, a, couple, a year and a half ago, and rates have now moved up to 4%, you've got massacred. And that's what's happened to a lot of investors. Mm -hmm. Now, Terry asks, you mentioned a number of companies during the conversation and some ticker symbols. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't keeping track of all the different companies in, this, in the tickers, but perhaps you have a, some notes close by. And if you could repeat some of the ticker symbols uh, that you mentioned. And okay. we should also tell uh, listeners where to find your fund, uh, maybe perhaps the, the ticker for your crown jewel uh, of small caps. Yeah, WWSIX is the symbol of the fund and uh, the symbols of some of the stocks. Uh, Advanced Energy Industries is AEIS. Um, the uh, FlowServe is FLS. Uh, Champion X is CHX. Um, uh, uh, and then uh, the Texas Bank is VBTX. Okay. And I think you did mention the AMN healthcare. Yeah. AMN is the symbol. And then AAR is AIR. Okay, great. I think that covered most yeah, of it. Yeah. Veritex Holdings is VBTX. Victor Boy Thomas X. Great. Um, Nick, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you can join us again on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren Rublin, Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Aaron Hurd, Managing Director of State Street Global Advisors, will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Be well.
and have a wonderful weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.